Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan, and this is our weekly sub series short takes, sustainable short takes, and updates. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan, and Hi, I'm Tova Kinoka, and I'm in Yokohama, just outside Tokyo. Now, Tova, you had a very interesting topic. I think、uh, it's kind of connected in some ways to mental health, but also diversity and inclusion. Talking about、uh, neuro diversity and inclusion,、right. understanding it、uh, in terms of mental health and, and those differences as well. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, thank you.、Um, so, this is a topic, I mean, I think. A lot of people probably he- have heard the word neurodiversity. It's sort of a bit of a buzzword going around in recent years, but perhaps might not have much understanding of what it really means.、Um, but it's something that's kept coming up again and again recently in the work that we do.、Um, so, a, a big focus, or the main focus of the work I do, is with.、Um, Sustainability, cultural change, and, and leadership development. But we also do a lot on,、um, and certainly our, our sort of background, if you like, is in、uh, different types of diversity, leading for diversity. And there's a program we've been doing、um, with one of our big clients, one of、um, Japan's biggest IT companies,、uh, for five years now. We've been doing the same program for five years with all their mid to senior management, and they all have to go through it. They can't avoid it. Um, and it's been fascinating in that time to see how the, the cultural makeup of the company has changed. So it's, it's a fairly young company compared to many of its, its Japanese peers.、Um, and although they hire a lot of、uh, sort of f-、uh, freshmen, as you'd call them, straight out of university, they also hire a lot of mid career people. And that is bringing a lot of different types of diversity. Into the company.、Um, and we've noticed, certainly in the last sort of few years, as the groups are getting more and more diverse,、um, and you're getting people coming from different companies and different countries as well, that there's a lot of that type of diversity too, that we're, we're seeing more and more people bringing very different perspectives to、um, the company, to the work that they're doing.、Um, and There are, there are pros and cons to that, right? Because working with diversity is not easy.、Um, you know, we tend to feel comfortable with people who look like us, who talk like us, who share a lot of the same opinions and values. So when you're working with people who challenge those things, who, who bring a different perspective, it can be、um, uncomfortable, it can be a little bit、um, disconcerting. How do you work effectively together? Um, and so we've been seeing a lot of the, the challenges, and the program is designed to help them recognize those and also look at ways to, to work through it.、Um, but then I came across that article, I think, on The Beautiful Truth, which is a very interesting publication that looks at some、um, you know, different topics going on in the world. And they did this、um, article on、uh, neurodiversity and The, the benefits that can bring to, to companies, to societies, also the challenges. So, looking first at the challenges, if you've got people like Greta Thunberg that you just showed the picture of there, who、um, is diagnosed with having、uh, Asperger's or sort of on the autism spectrum, there, you know, there are often social misunderstandings about you know, how, how do people like this interact with others and 
um, what are their personalities like? And then uh, challenges like sensory overloads. Um, for some people, it might be very sensitive to, to noise or light and touch. So modern workplace settings can be really difficult places to work. Um, and uh, concentration, they might not be able to sort of cope very well with the usual nine to five. But then they were looking at, okay, so those are the challenges, um, but what are the benefits and the, the creativity and the, the different perspectives that this kind of neurodiversity can bring to companies is phenomenal. And you've got um, an example in the article of GCHQ in the US actively um, recruiting people with dyslexia and, and autism because they bring such a, a different um, look at big sort of important issues around security or, um, you know, things like this that the sort of the more neurotypical people just wouldn't even think to bring up. So they might have incredible analytical skills or um, be brilliant with numbers, which is completely, you know, my biggest weakness. So I could really appreciate someone like that. Um, I come from a family of dyslexics. We're on both sides of the family. Um, a lot of people have dyslexia. Um, but although there have been challenges coming up through the very typical education system, they've actually all done very well having found the, the, the thing they can excel in. Um, so I think it's interesting to look at beyond the, the kind of typical diversity that we talk about. We talk a lot about gender diversity, which is incredibly important, and you know LGBTQ and um, physical disabilities. But there's a lot of diversity under the surface that we don't see, might not necessarily be aware of or think about, that A, can create challenges if we don't know how to deal with it, but also can be incredibly powerful and looking at the big issues we're facing around, you know, climate and uh, social issues, we need all the diversity and perspectives we can get to solve these issues. Absolutely. What an interesting and important study and an, an important way to start thinking about um, people and the skills that they bring, not uh, just stereotypically thinking, well, they're like that, so they have to fit like that, right? Yes. I had a really yeah. interesting discussion with Tony Vega, who is the founder of Japankyo, and he's legally blind. And when he came to work on the JET program, he was working in a school for the blind. And oh, he wow. said how basically all the students were given just two career paths, like really limiting in what they were like being trained to go on and do mm. after school. And, and he has shown that you don't need any limitations. You know, he's doing podcasting. He's a content creator. Like there's a lot of different careers you could go on to. So uh, it's not doing society any, any benefit either by having mm. such a narrow a limitation on on people let's let's really find out uh where yeah. their skills are where yeah. they can really be a benefit to our business our society our community in more ways than how we've only thought about it very narrowly so far right yeah absolutely and that you know aligns absolutely with uh, the sdgs the purpose of you know creating these goals to leave no one behind right and no one means no one at all it shouldn't be sorry you're not typical you don't fit the the standard profile um of you know the the employee that we want for this it, we've got to look beyond that and 
yes, it might mean that company cultures and hiring practices and development processes need to change. Um, and that's a good thing. That's an opportunity for, um, you know, for, for doing things better. So uh, I, I think, yeah, it, this is a topic that needs much more um, looking at from society side and also a business perspective. And, and trial and error and research, you know, like let's let's try a diverse group of people in different kinds of roles and see what happens and reassess and see what we need to do to make it better for them as well as for the operations, right? I, I think we, yeah, in terms of mm -hmm. sustainability, there's a lot of great assessment and research we could do there. Yeah, I think so. And it was really great to see, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the workshops we've had with this client recently, um, where the, the groups are just getting more and more diverse year by year. And there was one group really that stood out, I think, um, a couple of weeks ago, where we had, there was quite a lot of um, sort of cultural diversity in the, the different nationalities in the group. That was one thing. But there was also, um, you know, people different ages. There was quite an age range. We had the youngest was probably around 30 up to sort of mid late 50s um, coming from very different work backgrounds as well. And the quality of output we were getting on topics like trust, how do you, tr you know, build trust in a work environment? How do you communicate effectively when you've got people who have very, very different approaches and preferences? And the quality of output we were getting from that very diverse group was incredible. And it was just such a, a step up when we think back to the beginning, um, when the groups that we were getting were generally pretty much all the same nationality, mostly men, mostly sort of mid 50s and up. Um, and you think, wow, that the difference that makes and the, you know, the thinking that that brings to a company that that's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, switching gears a little bit, a uh, different focus. Uh, I had a great conversation with founder Ian Urbina, who is an amazing journalist who started the Ocean out, the Outlaw Ocean project, and the Outlaw Ocean book is what he wrote, uh, following on his many years working at New York Times and other publications, covering stories that aren't often covered about the ocean. And mm -hmm. one of the really interesting stories. Um, that it just, there's so many connections to people, planet, profit, that it was such a great and horrifying example. Uh, in the Outlaw Ocean Project website, you can see it under the smell of money. And it's all about fish farming, which definitely affects Japan. Uh, we have a lot of new fish farming operations happening uh, all over the world. This one was about uh, fish farming in China and how it relates to create operations uh, for making fish meal. Now, fish mm -hmm. farming in the ideal sense when it was created, was created because we know we have an overfishing problem. We have a lack of wild fish. So they said, well, let's start raising fish uh, near shore and then we can have you know local produce where we need it, great. But uh, then they wanted to, similar to the meat industry, what happens with the meat industry when you go scale, uh, you want to fatten up the fish quickly. How do you do that? Oh, you have to feed them fish meal, which is made of fish. Where does that fish come from? 
uh, big factories being set up by China in Africa. And this uh, area that has all these new fish factories, it's taking a lot of the local fish, uh, overfishing that area, making fish meal, creating pollution there, sending the fish meal to China where it's fed the farmed fish. And it just, it's an insane situation. You're creating a bigger problem than there was before, yeah. right? And uh, you're taking away the chance for the local uh, villages to have any kind of decent tourism industry, which they had before. Um, mm. They have new pollution problems. And a lot of the fishmongers there were women who were doing the, the fish trade there. So you're losing that uh, income for not only the women doing it, but their families and their community. Because we know that when women earn money, it benefits society so much stronger, right? Because they're so embedded with children and, and their activities in the community. So mm. just horrible situation. And it connects to my book idea for today about the Lorax, uh, which I'll introduce now because it's so connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a children's book by Dr. Seuss, but in so many ways, this story and so many other stories that he was talking about is so exactly straight from the Lorax. It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's causing so much damage. It's not going to last. It's only for the short term for profits, right? Um, yeah. So everybody go read the Lorax. I know you didn't read it since you were a child. It's worth reading again. <laughs> exactly. I think it's it, it's such a wonderful book. And it's one of those things that you can read or you can watch um, the you know animated version as well. And I think you can watch it with your kids and they will take it at one level. But you can watch it again as an adult and, and get it at you know a completely different level and really see, like you say, how that ties into the issues we're dealing with today with sustainability with not looking at the bigger picture and the, the ripple effects of what we're doing um, and I know I, I harped on about this probably in every talk we've done so far but ecosystem thinking you know that if we're just looking at one thing like we need more fish we need them close to the shore fish farming yeah that makes sense great fine but you're not looking beyond to see okay well like you say, where does that come from, the, the fish meal, and how is that impacting communities? Unless you you zoom out and you take that wider view, um, you know, the, the problem is that, well, you're probably creating a bigger problem, as you said. And, and I think um, the Lorax illustrates that so beautifully, right, with cutting down the, the trees and they, they it's causing dirt and whatever. So they're solving one problem, but then creating a much bigger one. But because they're messaging it very, very cleverly, people drink it in and don't see the, the negative side of that. So no, it's, and it's then a creating a place that nobody wants to live. So right. you're, you're benefiting only a few with high profits for a very short yep. time. And then it's toxic. Nobody can live there. And then you're creating geopolitical problems. If you're taking away the local food, but also making it impossible for people to live there, that's mm -hmm. how a lot of people become migrants. And we have a huge international migra migration problem. So 
we really have to think long-term and we really have to think circular. Like yeah. how do all of these things negatively affect something else? And when we have global influence from global industries like this, it becomes really hard to see that circularity, right? Yeah, but if we if we research and thankfully places like Outlaw Ocean are researching for us and making it more clear, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it is a big issue. And particularly, you know, for a lot of the big global companies, they have incredibly complex supply chains. Um, I mean, we've talked previously about chocolate and coffee and things like that. But any large global manufacturing company has an incredibly long and complex uh, value chain or supply chain. Um, and the, the ripple effects of every part of that um, are very difficult to see. They're very difficult to track. Um, and so we really, really need more data. And there are advances, you know, happening in that blockchain is enabling um, better transparency, uh, you know, in a lot of uh, industries. And hopefully that will continue to, to be a positive influence. But, yeah, we, we also need data like the kind of stuff that Outlaw Ocean is looking at to say, look, we need to get the numbers on this to understand the impact we're having. And then we need to work out what we do about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you had a fabulous example uh, in Japan, this farm canning organization. Tell us about it. It's awesome. Right. Well, the, the topic is related to food waste. Um, and this started off by, uh, it was triggered a couple of days ago, I saw a, a trailer for an upcoming BBC um, documentary series called The Green Planet with my my absolute hero, Sir David Attenborough. Um, and the trailer was just about weeds. And he was looking at, you know, the Piccadilly Circus where he is there in London, pretty hostile place for uh, for plants, you would think, but plants are finding a way. And he said very often, you know, people see them in an, an environment like that. And it's like, oh, there's a weed, pull it out. And very often, you know, with our gardens, we're, we're conditioned to think that they need to be nice and neat and tidy and anything that pops up that we haven't planted, must be a weed and we quickly pull it out again. But um, he was saying that, you know, if we can reframe our mindset to look at weeds as um, pioneers that can actually thrive in places where um, other plants, you know, really struggle, they create a foundation, then begin to create soil that can produce, um, you know, then become a fertile place for other plants to grow. And that has a positive knock-on effect. And in the same vein, um, food as well, farm canning is great in that they take the, the kind of food that is often wasted because people see it as not useful. Like a weed, they would say, okay, well, the, the tops of carrots and things like this, or they, they started by buying up what is called the ugly veg from local organic farmers who, you know, the veg some come, sometimes comes out uh, looking a bit funny in the shape or whatever, or the skin finish is not perfect. And the, the shops often don't want to take that. They reject it. It doesn't look beautiful. Consumers won't like it. Sorry, it's worthless. And then all of a sudden, you've got this huge waste for the farmers, which impacts them economically. Um, but it, it's perfectly good food. So Farm Canning has been working with local farmers to buy up this food, turn it into gorgeous food. Um, their cans of um, sauces and things are 
absolutely wonderful. Highly recommend them. They're now selling uh, in some shops, uh, for example, Muji in Yokohama um, and a few other places uh, locally around Zushi where they're from. So it's very much a local operation, but they also have their online shop. But the whole concept of looking at something that would ordinarily be discarded and saying, well, actually, we shouldn't be discarding this. We can look at it in a different way. It's, you know, a, a weed might be a source of biodiversity and, and an ugly veg could be a source. It doesn't have to look perfect to become a source or the tops of vegetables and things that we might just chuck in our compost heap or, or in the bin or whatever. Those could actually be eaten if we know what to do with them. So that was, yeah, I love what Farm Canning's doing. Um, and I think it's it helps us rethink what we're doing with waste and how much waste we're creating. It's great to see this initiative. I'm so excited. I've reached out and I hope to get them on the show. It would be wonderful to learn more about uh, what they're doing and how they got started. I love this this graphic that they have on their Instagram. So from the farmer, you might have some unusual shaped vegetables, which might not uh, be wanted by the local supermarket, especially in Japan. It's not quite there yet. You don't see anything that's not perfect, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. Let's make it into bottled things. And everything they use is reusable glass containers. You know, they've got the idea of no single use plastics and stuff as well, right? Yeah. Wonderful. Absolutely. And actually, we've worked with them a few times before COVID when we were having face to face events. We've worked with them um, to have them as our caterers at events. And it's just what they can do with the so-called ugly veg is beautiful. I mean, there are some pictures on the website you can see from their, their catering side as well. So it's not just the sources. It's it's just looking differently at these things saying, well, how can we present them in a way that people are happy to to eat and enjoy and and it tastes amazing so uh, highly wow, recommend awesome it. and i followed the link from their website i uh, will put all the links below on the youtube channel um anything we talk about today just for reference and i followed to their youtube channel and she's got some great like cooking shows where she shows how they make some of this stuff so that's yeah. definitely worth checking out too definitely definitely and that kind of leads into my book recommendation as well which you can see behind me here is the the no waste vegetable cookbook um which was one i think somebody recommended to me um i think it might have been john walsh um, the urban farmer um recommended a few years ago and uh, again it just really helps you look at your veg differently and, and rather than chopping off the top of your your greens or your beet or your carrot or whatever and saying okay well that goes straight in the 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 namagomi or the the compost or whatever it's saying well actually could I use this? Could I eat it? And so we've been experimenting um, you know, based on some of the ideas in this book uh, with some new recipes. Some of them still need a bit of work, but uh, there's some great ideas. And one of the things that was um, I really loved was taking all of these bits, like the, the bits you peel off an onion that are you know, that sort of chewy if you cook them and you don't really want to eat them. But all of those bits and pieces, just boiling them up to make a stock, and then that's a soup base. Um, and so you would actually take them out and they can go in the compost and they break down much more quickly because they've already been cooked. But also, you know, what's left behind the stock is a great starter for a soup. So lots That's of great awesome. ideas. That's a great tip, isn't it? I love that. And then uh, when you do, if you can compost your kitchen scraps after, after you've used them completely, they break yeah. down faster, right? Yes, very much so. So it helps the, the composting process as well. 
uh, last week, uh, this week actually, about EVs. And Kevin and Scott joined me. And Kevin has joined the series before talking about Passive House. So the EV market is really exciting, how mm. it's changing in Japan and more chargers and everything, right? Yeah. But also about uh, good insulation, good building has led me on to finding this article on mm. Zenberg about the Earth ship. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't, but it looks fascinating. Wow. So it's a, it's a kind of a new idea for Japan. Mm -hmm very insulated, um, every aspect of the design, uh, capturing water, reusing waste, um, nothing is wasted. And it's also a, a guest house. So people can go and stay mm -hmm. and kind of experience it for themselves. So it's really exciting to see what they're doing. Uh, you can see on their website about a lot of it was self-build. You can see them mm -hmm. reusing tires as as part of the, the foundation. Um, there was another picture. I don't think I have it here where the rain is captured from the roof. So you can see the windows bring in the natural light, the solar energy, of course, renewable energy. Yeah. But also when the rain falls, um, there's an area around the building, which is like gravel. Ah, okay. And that so catches the rainwater and filters it, and then uh, you can use natural rainwater. So it's it's not only highly efficient, very environmentally friendly, but it also saves you money mm -hmm. because you're not having to buy power, you're not having to buy water. So yeah. these ideas are so smart and. On the website, they were saying they would love to have it in other areas of Japan. Ooh. This would be a perfect model for a lot of the rural area redevelopment that projects and people are thinking, how can we bring back life to this rural area? So mm -hmm. these kind of building designs are so important to be thinking about, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's uh, something I've personally been thinking about a lot um, because I would love to be you know, love to build something like that in the future as a kind of sustainability hub. It's a little dream that's been ticking away for a while. So I'll be looking more into Earthships. I'm really interested to learn about the potential for that. Definitely. Uh, John has joined from Facebook. We just mentioned you. You're He says the Earthships are great. Awesome. And there's an American farmer near Mount Fuji, Fuji Jake on Facebook, who built similar houses with built-in greenhouses. Uh, Fuji Jake was on the series, yeah. And I've talked to him about rural redevelopment. Um, it's, it's really exciting to see more people trying this. And unfortunately, like they said for this one in Tokushima on Shikoku Island as well, they need to do a lot of work themselves because there aren't any builders or uh, building rebuild organizations in Japan who have the know-how yet. Um, right. So hopefully, if the customer starts asking about it, hopefully uh, the building companies will get people trained and ready to use these strategies as well in building. That would be That's wonderful. Brilliant opportunity, isn't it, to, for the, the building industry to, uh, to branch out, do something new? Yeah, absolutely. So we just have a little bit less than a minute left, a little uh, plug for uh, SDG seminar. 
I'm doing、uh, this week. It's a national holiday in Japan on the 11th. And just for an hour in the morning, it's a free SDG seminar.、Uh, this time we're talking about how sustainability can actually save you money. So that's our, our focus、uh, for this time. So if you're interested, I'll put the link below where you can register and please join us. Also, Please, please save the date for March 21st as Tova and I are getting all of our schedule in order and getting all the details up. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. And it's exciting to see it taking shape behind the scenes. So hopefully we'll be able to share more with that、uh, or with everybody very soon. Drop the armor now, I'm bolder.